All right. Um, thanks, you all, for coming. This is really super exciting. Um, I will be talking about, I'll try to convince you that everything that you think you know about development is wrong. Um, so I founded AidGrade. I'm also an academic economist. Um, for anybody who is based in the Bay Area, I'll actually be a visiting assistant professor in Stanford in the fall, so I'll be around to keep in touch. I'm also on Twitter, so find me on Twitter. That way we can communicate. All right. So this all started, I was trying to think through what are the most effective things that I could be doing. Um, this was a long time ago before effective altruism had a name, um, maybe 2001 or so. I was an undergrad, and I was thinking, how can I know what's most effective? Um, well, I don't know right now, but I've got an idea, and my idea is I'm going to do an economics PhD, and that will tell me what to do. Um, so I did an economics PhD. I graduated in 2011. 2012, I thought, okay, now supposedly I know what there is to know. Um, let's do this. Um, and I started AidGrade, which gathers all of the results from impact evaluations of different international development programs and synthesizes them and tries to learn from that. So these are also living meta-analyses. Um, the difference will become clear really shortly. So an impact evaluation is just a study which has a counterfactual and tries to consider that carefully. There's this comic from XKCD you might have seen. Um, a meta-analysis synthesizes all of the results. Um, and a living meta-analysis keeps the findings up to date. So just to take a step back, what usually happens when somebody does a meta-analysis now, they, there will be this huge process of first trying to search the literature for all the studies on a particular topic, and then screening all those papers, extracting the data from them, and then finally synthesizing them and writing up the meta-analysis. And that whole big process will result in one estimate. If somebody else disagrees with the studies that were included, or new studies have come out and they want to include them, they have to start from scratch. And they do the whole search process, all of the screening, all of the data extraction, all over again. It's a very wasteful and inefficient process. So I thought, well, great, what we can do, um, sorry, the formatting is a little bit off, um, is we can have some additional uh, studies that we include and keep this, gather all the data on the characteristics um, uh, of the study so you can do that screening at a later stage. And you can just keep on adding data and not have to go through the whole search and screening process every time. Um, but if you want to later on um, uh, change how you screen those papers and focus only on the RCTs or only on studies done in sub-Saharan Africa or whatever, you could do that. So, um, yay, better formatting, thank you. <laughs> um, so we're trying to get the superset of all the studies and keep it updated, which is really important because um, about 25% of meta-analyses actually are obsolete within two years. And if you think about it, nobody's going to redo a meta-analysis every two years. It's just not going to happen. So, okay, eighth grade filled this niche. Um, academics don't usually want to touch meta-analysis with a 10-foot pole. Um, so I'm kind of taking that status hit. Um, and uh, NGOs don't really uh, do this either. So small niche to fill, but we can fill it. Um, and it's particularly important to do because Impact evaluations are exploding right now, uh, both randomized controlled trials and these quasi-experimental studies. So it's kind of a good time uh, to be starting to build up the systems to handle these data. 
So okay, right now, you know, we have a site, you can actually, we have an app to build your own meta-analysis where you can, you know, select your intervention you're interested in studying, like unconditional cash transfers, you look at an outcome like test scores, and you see some results from different studies. Um, so, great. Um, but there is a bit of a problem in that, uh, you know, take a step back. Remember why I started all this. I thought, well, I want to know what works. I want to know what's the most effective. Problem, results vary. And they vary a lot. Um, a particular program uh, might have different effects uh, depending on characteristics of the sample. So if you're treating some disease, the baseline um, prevalence of the disease probably matters. Um, the age of the sample might matter. Their wealth might matter. Um, so there's lots of different factors. And, you know, we never actually have the situation that we evaluated. If nothing else changed, you know, by the time you're doing a project that has, um, in a place where you've already evaluated a project, hopefully your first time around you did something good. So hopefully the, the sample itself is different. Um, but even apart from that, there are so many other things that can vary. So here I just have a very simple thing where the black dots are places where the World Bank has funded a project. And that's overlaid with the density of the um, impact evaluations that have in eight grades data. Um, so, you know, to the extent that you think that maybe a result in Kenya does not very well predict a result in Senegal, um, we might have a bit of a problem. So... The medical literature is actually much better at dealing with this. Uh, there's this wonderful figure uh, from a paper called something like Everything We Eat Both Prevents and Causes Cancer uh, by Schoenfeld and Anadis. Sorry, I mangled that. Um, where they essentially look at each red dot there is one particular medical study. And um, they're saying, look, there are some studies that show that Wine protects against cancer, but there are also some studies that show that wine causes cancer, and same for tomatoes, tea, milk, eggs, whatever you want. You know, we're both in trouble and being protected. Um, this is really trying to speak to the fact that there's a range of effects, and we really need a large body of evidence before we're able to say anything. Um, so, you know, I saw this graph, I thought it looked cute, and I thought, oh, well, I could do that. <laughs> Everything we do both prevents and causes development. <laughs> so here we've got the interventions that are in eight grades data set. Currently we have got about 700 academic studies, um, their results in the data set, um, and the variation in their effects. Now these are effect sizes in standard deviations. Um, just for some context here, um, an effect size of around 0.2 is considered a small effect size. Um, zero to 0.2 is... Yeah, about there. Um, 0.5 is usually a medium effect size, and 0.8 is a large effect size. So if you think about that, that's already getting, you know, just a small fraction of the overall distribution there. There's quite a large distribution of effect sizes, even for the same kinds of interventions. And yes, this is across different kinds of outcomes, but so was the previous graph. <laughs> um, so, all right. Well, maybe this is just error. Maybe, you know, there is some effect that a program has. And sure, there's a distribution, but that's because every time you're doing it, um, you have some noise in there. There's some kind of um, sampling error. Well, not necessarily, no. Um, there's this statistic when you do a meta-analysis called the I-squared, which is the proportion of variation that is real, that, that's not error, that is saying 
there's not one true effect size of a program, but there's some distribution. If you do the same program in different places, you are going to get all these different effects. And all of those different effects are true effect sizes um, in those different contexts. Um, so these ranges here, um, I, di I didn't invent the ranges of 0 to 25% or 25% to 50%. The original people who suggested the I-squared measure, they made those ranges. And they said that 25% uh, was low, 50% was moderate, 75% was high. And they didn't really have a term for what came after that. So um, the point is, we have very few which are um, in that sort of low band where it's, there seems plausible to, be, to explain the results as mm, being mm, comparable or from the same kind of distribution. Uh, most of the results are quite different. Not only that, but you might think, well, that's fine. Maybe we can model some of these differences. Maybe we can explain away all this extra variation, in which case we're, we're still good. It's great. I wish that were true. I really sincerely wish that were true, but it's very hard. Um, I've been able to get to maybe 5% predictive power. Um, if, it's funny because if you talk to economists, they're like, that's amazing. <laughs> but realistically speaking, practically speaking, it's a little bit tough. Um, maybe we can do a bit better here in the future. I'm actually just starting a collaboration potentially with some people at NYU and Columbia, really great people. So I don't know, maybe we'll be able to push this a little bit farther, but at the moment it's not looking so hot. Um, so <laughs> what comes out of this? First, anybody who actually says that they know what works is lying, sorry, but kind of true. Um, more than 80% of the time we can't actually distinguish um, between the interventions effects on a particular outcome. So I think we're used to thinking of this world where we see, okay, there's program A and program B, and it looks like program A has a bigger effect size than program B. So program A is great, right? Um, well, there's also some confidence intervals around there, and maybe not. I mean, maybe they're both significantly different from zero, but um, we can't really distinguish them from each other. Um, so it's just something that we are not really talking about as much as we probably should. And further, even apart from that, there's additional uncertainty because how do you quantify which outcomes are more valuable? Now, you can try to do this, but it's an additional step. It's an extra thing that there could be uncertainty over. Um, so it's a very complicated problem. Also, I would like to argue that this uncertainty matters. Sometimes people will say, well, okay, look, we don't know what, there's a great range of uh, things here, but let's be risk neutral about it and we're fine. We can just proceed as normal, nothing's changed. I'm not so convinced by that. Um, so there might be some philosophical arguments against risk neutrality on this. I'm not going to try to speak to that. Um, actually, my undergrad major was philosophy amongst other things, but I couldn't claim to be an expert on this anymore. So if somebody has other things that they want to add on this, fantastic, go for it. But I'm gonna speak to the pragmatic concerns here. Um, so I did spend two years at the World Bank um, in the Young Professionals Program, and there it was really clear that, um, you know, they were very concerned that if they screwed up, governments wouldn't want to work with them anymore. Um, and this is something that's actually very real. Or if you think of an agricultural extension program, if you try to tell people to do something and then their crops fail, they're not going to trust you again. So there are real issues here, or, or with funding. Um, 
There's also, um, you might also be motivated by the shape of the utility function that we tend to think people have. There's some good evidence that people really feel losses more strongly than they appreciate gains, and there also might be diminishing returns after a while, which would also suggest maybe we should be a bit risk-averse. Um, on the other side, it's, if you think that there are poverty traps, maybe heterogeneity is great. Maybe what you need are these few outlying things that um, could potentially break you out of the poverty trap that you're in. Um, I think maybe most disconcerting and underappreciated is that we might actually have some systemic biases um, because people like to report the biggest results. I mean, we can we probably all somewhat came to effective altruism in a way because we saw some things that NGOs were saying that seemed patently wrong. <laughs> um, like, you know, they find the biggest number they can possibly use to support their position and they promote that number. Well, academics face the same incentives. <laughs> also, when we're reading these papers, we tend to remember the more memorable results better. Um, so there are all sorts of ways in which these heterogeneous results might be more privileged in how we are both creating the evidence and interpreting the evidence and remembering it. So a bit problematic. So one thing that I'm trying to shift a little bit towards is you know, thinking of results at, in the framework of, well, there are some which um, might, be, might have, uh, tend to have high effect sizes and um, not be very heterogeneous. And there are some that might be very heterogeneous, but still have those high effect sizes um, and so forth. So here in this graph I've got, um, these are actually real interventions, although sort of simplistically done. I've taken sort of the mean, mean effect size within a, so um, take a bunch of different effect sizes within an intervention. Um, they're covering all sorts of different outcomes. This is just taking the straight mean, flat mean across all those. Simple, but it makes a point. Um, same for variation in effect sizes. Um, so you plot those against those. In your upper right quadrant there, you've got really heterogeneous but really large effect sizes. Um, then you've got um, not so heterogeneous large effect sizes. The ones that are not so heterogeneous have low effect sizes. I, we know they suck. <laughs> um, and uh, finally, um, you know, upper left, heterogeneous low effect sizes. So it's something that we should probably think about more. But I'd also ask, so, okay, well, what does this mean for effective altruism per se? Um, well, don't trust anybody who claims they can tell you they know what they're doing. Um, and I think we should care a bit more about confidence intervals. Um, now, it's true that confidence intervals are a function of the power of, the statistical power of the test. So it's not the be and end all of everything, but it's still informative. Um, and we can also do some other things. We can do some more well-powered studies. Um, I emphasize well-powered because even within a single study, if you've designed it carefully, you can actually do a lot of these subgroup analyses, especially if you pre-specify them beforehand, so you're committing to doing exactly those analyses so you're not sort of gaming the system afterwards and finding someone's just happened to be effective and being like, oh, look, yeah, we, we planned this. Um, so doing well-powered studies helps. I actually find that the amount of heterogeneity within a single study is pretty predictive of the amount of heterogeneity within a particular intervention outcome combination. So say uh, the effect of deworming on stunting or something like that. Um, you've got 
um, if, if a study itself is heterogeneous on that in terms of the different subgroups it reports um, or the different um, ways that they divide the data, um, chances are that overall across papers you also have very heterogeneous results. Um, doing meta-analyses helps. Um, you, by doing a meta-analysis, you increase your power, you reduce your confidence intervals, ideally. Um, it should help. Um, also, along with the more well-powered studies, I should say that one of my main hopes uh, to move past this heterogeneity problem is, uh, to, is the potential to use big data more. Um, that's really um, a great opportunity. So if you happen to know of any good data sources, I'm going more into that area now, and I would love to chat with you. And also, I've got my own data to share from aid grades, so we should chat. Um, heter modeling heterogeneity. Um, this is important. It's also, we should be cautious when doing it though, because even within eighth grade's data, all of the results are experimental or quasi-experimental. But when we look at it from the perspective of us here right now, that's observational data. Because where the studies were done is highly selected. Uh, you don't just randomly decide to do a study somewhere. There's some process behind that. So um, we've got to be careful for that and other reasons. And finally, to look for well-validated theories. Uh, my favorite example here is um, I might not be very confident about what is the best thing to be doing with my money, but I am pretty confident that uh, the marginal benefit it provides to me is not as great as the marginal benefit it would provide to somebody else. Uh, there is pretty strong evidence about diminishing returns there. Um, so, you know, I'm at least fairly confident of something like GiveDirectly, for example, um, if not something else. Um, there are some things that at least I can be fairly confident about. So I'm not trying to say, don't do anything, don't be paralyzed with indecision, but um, finally, maybe most importantly, help us build this. We have done a lot with not very much money, with not very much um, in the way of publicity. I mean, we're mostly academically oriented, right? So um, it's kind of a big opportunity right now. We are both underfunded and underpublicized. We need to do a lot more to write up things using this amazing data that we've compiled. Um, and we're hiring. So <laughs> we're hiring for both uh, these things. Um, also, we're doing a machine learning competition um, in the fall uh, to try to uh, get more traction on this. So do that if you're, check that out if you're interested. Um, and finally, I want to sort of go back to the bigger picture of there's this explosion of impact evaluations. We have to sort out now how we're going to deal with that. And in the ideal world, you can think that we would have this system where the data collection process is pretty much automated. Um, there are several ways that um, I'm thinking of pushing this forward. One would be to go to the journals and say, look, please ask people to report some standard things, like some effect sizes, for example, and some, you know, some basic things. Um, another route that we're um, pursuing is um, um, getting more of this data through an online wiki system, um, which is crowdsourced, but uh, before doing that crowdsourcing to have these on online training modules that people have to go through in order to be able to enter the data. So uh, that's one other suggestion. Farther future, I don't think this is realistic in the near future, but one day, ideally, I mean, we've been reading these PDFs and it's a mess. <laughs> if there's any way in the future that these things can be 
read by machines, that would be fantastic, but not credible in the near future for a variety of reasons. But I'm happy to chat about any of those things later. All right, so thank you very much. You guys have so much potential to do things, so I hope that you make the most of this conference, and we can chat after. Thank you. Thank you.